Hello, my friends. What's going on? Thank you so much for checking out the show. Today, I have a really interesting guest on the show. And not only interesting because of who he is and what he's done, but interesting because of what's shaping up in the world right now, in the world of psychedelic medicines and psychedelic therapy and the legalization aspect and how fast it's moving around the world in the Western countries like Canada, where this gentleman has his publicly traded company, Numinous, based. This conversation includes a lot of tactical information about entrepreneurship and fundraising, along with some of the knowledge that is emerging regarding the regulatory aspect and the development of these therapeutic psychedelic medicines in our society. So my guest today is Peyton Nyquist, and he's the founder of Numinous. I met him at the Aubrey Marcus Fit for Service Mastermind back in 2018 when we were both just getting our companies off the ground. So check it out, and please and thank you if you like it. Leave me a review. You know, everybody likes to look at those reviews. So if you can, at minimum, click a five star on iTunes. And if you're feeling super generous, write a nice little tiny paragraph in there talking about how much you love the show. And I swear to the heavens, I will love you forever. Thanks again. Enjoy the show and uh, hear from you soon. Welcome to the show, my friends. Today I have an up-and-coming, rising star in the world of entrepreneurship and plant medicines, or if you want to call it plant medicine entrepreneurship, <laughs> I guess you can say. Peyton, uh, man, I don't even, I, I don't know how to pronounce your last name. It's uh, Nyquist. 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 Tricky okay, one. Peyton. Yeah. Yeah, NyQuest. I'm like, is it NewQuest or is there some kind of <laughs> where? Wh where? Uh, where's that from? It's a Scandinavian name. We uh, we don't know exactly where from. My my grandpa was a, a war orphan, so we're still uh, trying to track down where where he's actually from. But but somewhere okay. somewhere north and cold. So on uh, on the so, other side uh, of the you, you're you're one of those entrepreneurs who's got a. a tragic family history so you got a chip on your shoulder and you've got to <laughs> prove yourself that's right that's right that's right <laughs> good stuff um well let's uh i guess just just to mention quickly um you are the founder of numinous which is what is numinous yeah so so essentially numinous is our our focus is really um, to provide uh, the the infrastructure for evidence based psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, um, founded out of Vancouver, Canada, and really you know focusing on how we can help create and work with you know these different research organizations and and nonprofits to be able to provide access for people who uh, who need access to these therapies really in their backyard. So specifically MDMA, and I thought I saw something about psilocybin that you're also 
Yeah, yeah. So the the big focuses are are MDMA, psilocybin, and and ketamine. Um, not not restricted to. We have a a licensed facility in in just outside of Vancouver, um, and our license gives us the ability to work with a number of different psychedelics, including MDMA, psilocybin, mescaline, DMT. Um, wow. And uh, yeah, so so not uh, not really focusing on one particular medicine, but especially seeing with, with a lot of the regulation change that we're seeing in Canada, um, MDMA and psilocybin definitely um, at the forefront of, of what we're looking to support. That is incredible. That's something that I never thought I would see in my life. You, that would, that makes two of us. Um, you know, people, it, it was interesting, started Numinous about two and a half years ago and, and people, you know, now seeing how quickly this, this space is moving in Canada, people were asking me, you know, how I was feeling about, you know, all this and must feel good. And, you know, I, I, I started off by saying I feel uh, less crazy than I did a couple of years ago when, when I started. And I, I don't know if that's accurate. I think, I think I'm, I still feel crazy, but at least my craziness is a little valid, feeling a little validated anyways. So. Um. Well, I mean, that's, that's, uh, you know, a short amount of time. So we actually met, we met in the Aubrey Marcus fit for service mm -hmm. mastermind mm -hmm. two and a half years ago mm -hmm. when you were just getting started here. Um, you know, I already was kind of rolling with Soltara. I think maybe we were open for about a year mm -hmm. at that point. Um, so we were both kind of you know, struggling to get off the ground and, and get our, get our game, uh, on point there. Uh, and then we, we hung out in that fit for service mastermind for a year. Um, did you actually finish that, that year? I, I was, I, I missed a few of the retreats, um, only because really just got super busy with, with what we were doing. Um, but, uh, but was, two of us. yeah, yeah. But was in sort of the program throughout the whole thing, but yeah, I missed a couple of the retreats, which, um, I, I kicked myself a little bit about, cause I think there was a, a lot of, uh, good things that came out of that, but, but obviously just with the, it's interesting to see the path that the people who are in that, you know, group have sort of gone on and I've kept in touch with, with quite a few of them and yeah, cool to, cool to see the evolution of that. So how has your journey been in the past two and a half years? You, like, first off, what got you into this? What gave you the idea? Yeah. And how did you get started and, and talk about your journey a bit? Sure. Um, you know, I, I really come to this space as a, as a patient first, as, as most people um, do who are very passionate about this. But uh, I turned to plant medicines and, and psychedelic therapy really as as a last ditch effort to to try and save my life. I was suffering suffering with some severe chronic pain issues and and knew it was tied to my mental health. And um, you know, for for fifteen or more years, went through the Western medical system and just kept getting more and more sick. And uh, and turned to plant medicine, as I mentioned, as as a last ditch effort to to try and save my life, and and did so. Um, and came out of that experience really just, you know, trying to figure out a way that I could give back to, to something that saved my life. I never intended on quitting my job and, and doing this full time. But, um, you know, the more I was talking to at the time was really only not for profit 
groups in in North America that were doing any of the work and um, just realized there was a lot more than philanthropy um, that I could do to support. And, you know, I, I have a finance background by trade and I know how hard it is to raise money, especially not for profit money um, to, to try and get this done. And, um, you know, sustainability and, and scalability, um, you know, a big factor of that is, is financial sustainability and say, and scalability as well. And, and if we're talking about, you know, broad access, you've got to be able to build that model that, you know, therapists should be able to be compensated and, and get paid for what they're doing. And, and so that entire, framework needed to be set up. And you just saw this huge gap between these amazing research numbers that were getting put out and the other side of it, which is, okay, what does the, what does this look like in, in real life? And, and so for us, that was really it was to try and help bridge the gap. Yeah. Well, man, you've done a hell of a job. So you, you built out your business plan. Mm-hmm. So I want to, I want to dig into your, your, your experience in finance, because you mentioned to me that you worked for a private uh, equity company. So I'm interested in kind of going in two directions with this conversation. One sure. is, you know, going technical on the medicine and numinous. And the other one is providing advice for entrepreneurs who mm-hmm. there's probably I, I know for a fact there are entrepreneurs, young up and coming entrepreneurs that want to get into this space, but it's a hell, like you said, it's, it's a hell of a difficult time to raise money. Yeah. So at what point did you actually start looking for money? Like how much of this did you just do yourself right at the beginning? Yeah. Good question. Um, for the first, really, I would say the first year and a half, I funded it myself. Um, and we, we went out and did our first, uh, official fundraise, uh, about a year ago. Um, since then we've raised about 40 million Canadian, um, maybe a little bit, 40 million, 40, four, zero million. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was four, man. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's been, um, yeah, it's been busy on, on the capital raising front. And obviously, you know, you've seen a huge amount of interest come into the space, um, to, to, support that. But, um, you know, it's, it's interesting always with, with capital raising, it's, it's, it's when it's good, it's, it's great. And when it's bad, it's awful. And there's not a whole lot of in between. Um, and so, you know, for the first little bit, as I said, it was bootstrapping it myself, which, you know, gets pretty stressful. And you're wondering when, uh, when that revolving door is going to stop and get some support to come in. Um, and so let's, let's dig into that a little bit. Yeah. So you were, you were working, you had a full, you have had a full-time job at this capital, uh, private capital firm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, uh, I was, uh, at a, a brokerage firm called Mackey research and, uh, I was a broker there and I, I ran their Vancouver office. Um, so, so about 15 years in, in, uh, capital markets and, and fundraising. And, and how did you get into that field of work? You know, I, I naively uh, got into the finance business thinking that was going to be my way to help people. 
Um, I, I, I always had a strong call to service. Um, I grew up in a, in a family that was involved in, in the finance business and, and watched, um, you know, how much of a, a people business that that was. And so I thought that was going to be my, my call to service was, you know, try and make people more money and give them more financial freedom. Um, that was pretty naive as an 18 year old. And I realized pretty quickly that, you know, making people more money wasn't, wasn't the solve to, to their problems. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I guess just to, to back up a little bit too, mental health and, and healthcare has been something that I've, I was, you know, a, a mental health advocate in my sort of mid to late teens, um, and has been something that's been a very active component in my life and a little bit, you know, a little bit different than a lot of the other, you know, the finance industry has a certain flavor as, as a lot of people are aware of. And I think that's changing pretty rapidly, but, uh, but at the time it was, it was, I was a bit of an outlier in terms of just my, my ethos around a lot of that. So what kind of degree did you do in order to get into the finance industry? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a bad, I'm a bad, uh, maybe a, a bad academic representative. Uh, I started right out of high school. Um, I did a, a, a BA or at BCIT um, that I did after work. Um, and uh, really, uh, I'm call it school of hard knocks in terms of, of an education. Um, and that was sort of my, really my approach was, was just get to work. Well, that though in itself is something that is a bit of a commonality and is, and is an important acknowledgement for entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. you know, willing to go to the school of hard knocks and how much wisdom does that give you over time? And also the fact that you seemed ambitious enough to get right into the working world, but also understood the importance of qualifying yourself after work and, mm -hmm. and, and doubling down on that and hitting those both tracks at the same time, which then ultimately shortens, mm -hmm. shortens the end point, the distance yeah. to the end point. Yeah, well, exactly. And, and, you know, obviously, you know, we also live in a, a day and age where information is, is hugely accessible and, and educating yourself is, is hugely accessible. And um, yeah, I think, you know, for, for our generation, it's, you know, work ethic and will and ambition and, and those types of things are, are hugely important. I used to run a, a, a rookie training program at the brokerage firm and, uh, you know, would always be very, it'd be a, a fairly popular thing that young people were trying to get involved with. And I would say would usually fill up with 70%, um, you know, kids with, with big degrees and, and lots of money spent in schooling and 30% young, hungry, ambitious. And, and I would say 90% of the time, uh, the guys that were left were, were out of that 30% pool. Um, and, uh, well, I wonder, I wonder how representative that is for just the world of business yeah. in general, yeah. right? Is yeah. it, is it your qualifications that make you successful or is it your drive, your, willingness to go to the next level, your ability to solve problems mm -hmm. and just mm -hmm. carry on basically and have grit and carry on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. Completely agree. So you get it, you, you get straight into the finance industry, you 
do your qualification. So you're probably working like a rookie level job, yep. like entry level job right out of high school, putting in your time, upgrading your educational qualifications along the way. How long did that take you to finish your degree? Uh, it was about a four, four and a half year process. Um, you know, again, doing it, doing it after work and, and things like that. Um, I actually lived, uh, I, the, I, I didn't, I probably didn't leave three blocks for like four years. Um, my school, my, I had an apartment that was right. Our office was the, the brokerage firm that I was working at. It was literally one block was the brokerage firm. The next block was my apartment. And the next block was, was the school I was going to. So it was, uh, it was efficient in terms of travel and, uh, and keeping me pretty focused. Well, how much of that is relevant to investors when they read your profile and they're look when they see that on your profile and they see this guy's switched on this yeah. guy's a go-getter this guy's willing to put the time in and not not leave his three bro three block radius for a few years mm -hmm. in order to get the job done well and that you know and that come you know i think that comes down to at least for me when i'm looking at investments or or things like that you know who's 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 driving it and what's driving them right and and what have they done previously huh. in terms of experience I, i'm not interested in but you know yes it's great to to have schooling and have an education but but what have you done with that education um and and where have you where have you applied yourself i think is is you know really really important so you uh you put your time in you up your qualifications you start working full-time in the financial industry, same company the whole time? Uh, no, I was, I was at a brokerage firm called Canaccord Capital for, or Canaccord Genuity when I left um, for about six years uh, and then left there and was a part of a group that bought a control position of a, a smaller independent brokerage firm. Um, we're there for, for about three years and then we sold that firm to to Mackey Research and then I ran Mackey's uh, Vancouver office and, and it was a director of the Across Canada firm. So you moved up pretty quickly to manage, managerial and decision-making positions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And roughly like how many, how many businesses did you work with along the way, funding and managing and advising? Uh, I mean, funded... I, somewhere in the hundreds of companies, um, you know, a lot of what what my business was was funding junior companies, junior startup. Um, you know, in Vancouver, Vancouver is a bit of a hub for for raising startup capital. Um, so that was a lot of of what we were doing was was um, helping companies get launched um, and supporting new industry. So, what did you look for when you were funding a new company? People, so it people it it's the first foremost and and most important thing are are who are the people and and as I said you know what's driving them and uh, I think you know as as you're aware problems come up that uh, most of them you don't read about in a book or or don't have a manual for and good people you know solve problems and and uh, recognize that problems are opportunities and and that's where you know, real growth in companies come from is, is turning those problems into opportunities. Man, I saw a really good quote the other day, intellectuals solve problems and geniuses prevent them. <laughs> I like that. I like that one. So there's, 
there is definitely, I'm thinking about this today. It's like, there's definitely an element of entrepreneurship where it's like, you have to be a ruthless and lethal problem solver. Like yeah. a problem comes up and you've got to destroy it. Like you have to crush that problem yeah. and make it go away. Yeah. But at the other, on the other hand, you have to constantly be aware of what's going on in your surroundings and, and anticipate and predict mm-hmm. outcomes so that you're avoiding problems to begin with, because it's so much easier to just avoid a problem than to try to, you know, put out fires all the time. Totally. Well, yeah. What's your, what's, what's the necessary risk? Um, and, and what risks are, you know, risk management, but also again, risk opportunity, right? If you're, if you're looking at a problem and if you can take a look at that and go, okay, as a company, you know, is this problem representative of my, um, my clients or, or the, the popular, you know, the group that I'm looking to address. And if that's the case, then how can, how can what I'm creating as a company solve this for people or create a solution, you know? for this for people. So you, um, you move up, you work with all these different companies, you get your pedigree in the finance Mm -hmm. industry, you spend 15 years working in the finance industry and you start to suffer some, some health problems and some, some mental health problems. Yeah. And then what brings you to, how do you, how do you actually get into, you know, is it, you said plant medicines, is it mushrooms? Is it ayahuasca? Is it San Pedro? Is it? Yeah. What is it? Yeah. Well, you'll, you'll, you'll appreciate this story a little bit, but I, uh, you know, I, I struggled with chronic pain my whole life really since I was a kid and, uh, and mental health as well. And as a, you know, when I was 15, started working with a therapist and, and was always something that I was, really um dedicated to to working on um and was always quite a, outspoken about as well um but what i was realizing no matter how much i was trying to to alleviate the these issues that i was having they were continuing to get worse and they seemed to be directly paralleled with with my professional success the more success i was having the sicker i was getting um which was interesting i mean my the most successful week of my whole life, I spent the whole week in the hospital. And, uh, and I remember laying in the, in the hospital bed and saying like, if this is, if this is what success looks like, then I'll go, I'll go dig holes for a living. Cause this is, this isn't worth it. Um, but was it stress? It was, it was for sure. That was a, a big, big part of it. Um, I think stress, I think, you know, again, just talking about my professional career, um, service has always been really important to me and, and doing things that, that help people or make an impact for people was important to me. And I, the realization more and more that what I was doing was maybe not totally aligned with that, um, was a part of it. And, um, and so I'd researched psychedelics for like a year and a half. Um, I'd never actually taken a psychedelic before. Um, but, uh, I decided to go more to the deep end of the pool and, uh, I booked a flight to go do ayahuasca while I was in the hospital, actually um, got out of the hospital, packed my bags, got on a plane and, uh, and went and did ayahuasca. And my chronic pain was, was severe. The way it would start would be like severe, severe gut pain. So, um, you know, I had to, I had to talk my wife off, uh, off the, the concern ledge a little bit. She, she was scratching her head trying to figure out how severe chronic gut pain was going to get fixed with drinking, uh, 
you know, some magical brew in the jungle for a week, but, uh, but that's, but that's what I did and, and, uh, have it, you know, was really one week, uh, I'd never been sick since. And, and this is something that literally I struggled with every single day, my entire life. One week and it totally healed your gut pain. Yep. Yep. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Was, was really hard to, uh, hard to comprehend really. It, 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 it was such a, it, you know, as I said, it, it's, it's, it's been the ethos for, for why, you know, getting involved in this space. Um, but, uh, but yeah, pretty incredible. So then you have this, this life and health changing experience with ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. Then where do you go from there? Yeah. So, you know, it was interesting. I, and as you know, you know, you go through these experiences. We did four ceremonies in a row, and uh, and I go through, you know, this this really life changing. And I didn't have, you know, I didn't go watch the universe get built and fly around on a unicorn or any of that kind of stuff. It was a very just physical experience for me. Um, but as I said, you know, first time I'd had relief from from my physical issues in my whole life, and um, but I got a strong message um, in my last ceremony, which was really like ayahuasca showed up and just said, this is too important for you to be involved with, with fucking up. So leave it alone. Um, so I got this really stern, you know, sort of bug off from, from ayahuasca. And, um, you know, that sort of came up as I was, as I was going down to go do ayahuasca, I was, I was like, you know, sort of in my head going, wow, this, you know, if this goes, all according to my plan, which as you know, it never does. Um, this feels like something I should, I could maybe support when I get back. And so I get this big screw off message from ayahuasca. I go, okay, you know, there was 90 something people at the retreat that I was at, you know, at the end of the retreat, everybody's hugging and saying how they're going to quit their job and become yoga instructors or whatever. And meanwhile, I've just been told to beat it. And, uh, so I get back on the plane and go home and, and, uh, I say, okay, you know, I, I totally hear that. I don't have to get involved, but I, I have to give something back to something that saved my life. That's it. I, I don't need any recognition. I, I don't need anything, but I, I feel like I, I have to give something back to show support. And within three weeks was talking to Health Canada and there was all this momentum wow. behind these conversations I was having. And, um, you know, I, I kept getting... Uh, people within the psychedelic community that all of a sudden I was sort of getting thrust into were saying, you know, there's, there's a reason, you know, there's momentum behind what you're doing. The universe is hitting you over the head with a bit of a hammer here. Um, this is something you should get involved with. And, um, you know, I kept saying the same thing, which is, well, you know, ayahuasca kind of told me to fuck off. So I'm, I'm, (laughs) I'm, I'm not getting involved. And they kept saying, no, no, like the, you know, this is, this is happening. And so I did, really the only thing that I felt was the right thing to do. And I booked another flight and went back down to, to talk to ayahuasca again, uh, two months later and, um, did that and, you know, got all these messages about now you understand the level of integrity and, and, and how this needs to be walked with. And, um, you know, so, so good lessons and you're sort of ready to, to move forward and get more involved. And, it was the last night and on the last night where I went, there's a bit of a, a crew change. So half of the 90 something people leave and, and the first half of the new 90 something people show up. And, uh, 
my wife came down with me the second time and I, we were walking to dinner and, uh, and I said to her, uh, I don't know why, but I, I feel called to reach out to Gabor Mate. I've, I've never met him before, but I you know, know who he is. And for some reason that's coming up. And my wife's used to me saying crazy things like that. So she sort of nodded and we went to dinner and uh, got to dinner and Gabor Mate's daughter was sitting beside me at the dinner table. Um, and Hannah. Hannah, yeah. And she had just come down. And uh, so I said, okay, you know, sort of got the message that we're probably good here. And Hannah and I had a great conversation. We never really once talked about her dad. And I got home and she sent me an email saying, you should probably meet with my dad. And I said, yeah, yeah, probably. And uh, Gabor and I met and, and Gabor was really one of the first big supporters uh, that I had that was really backing a lot of, of what I was sort of talking about and, and trying to support. That's great. I mean, it seems like our community is is uh, somewhat uh, overlapping. Mm-hmm. You've got you've got Gabor, you've got Dennis on your board of advisors, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, so do we. Yeah. So uh, you know, it's uh, pretty pretty fortunate for us to have Absolutely. such legendary guys want to participate and and actually give their kind of stamp of approval. That, yeah. You know, yeah. we believe in what you're doing. Yeah. Well, and especially in integrity led people like that as well, who have, who have just the amount of experience. And I think, you know, we've talked about this before, but I I think what's really exciting about this space as well is it seems the integrity seems to not be getting lost um, in terms of, of rolling this out. You know, there's always going to be opportunists that come to where opportunity is, but um, from what I've seen, which has been really encouraging, is is um, the integrity is there, and and people are are doing this for the right reasons. From what I've seen, that's a good point. And you know, I've been in this world since 2010, so I've been I've I've seen a lot of uh, I've seen a lot of evolution take mm-hmm. place, and I've seen different phases in the in the field of of ayahuasca and other plant medicines, you know, in, in like, for example, in 2010, it was, it was very subculture. It was very, uh, risque and very, um, very, uh, not mainstream. It was not accepted by the mainstream. It was still portrayed in Hollywood videos and on the media as this crazy psychedelic brew that makes you vomit and purge your <laughs> demons in the jungle and people die. Sometimes it can kill you, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's, there was that whole kind of, does it actually kill you moment where everybody's like, you know, it's dangerous. You can die, whatever. Right. Um, and then over time it, it, uh, it, it changed a lot. Iquitos was this big hot spot in yep. Peru, right? And everybody was flocking to Iquitos and all these centers were popping up. And then you had this weird competition between, uh, between centers and between shamans. And you, you got to this point where there were a lot of charlatans at play. Yeah, You know, it was big business and it was like the Wild West and there was a lot of charlatans that were popping up centers and claiming to be shamans and claiming to be healers. And there were just a lot of like jungle tour guides who maybe didn't have the, Mm. you know, the integrity uh, beckoned by such a powerful medicine. And what I saw over time was that the people in this world who don't have integrity don't last Yep, because they're, what they're going to make a mistake someone's going to get hurt or people just sense it 
or that the people who are regarded as respectful, uh, sorry, respectable leaders in the field won't support people unless they have integrity, unless they can prove integrity. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, just on that note, um, on sort of what we've seen as well, you know, I, I think it's funny, people ask me a lot of the time, especially in in sort of the capital markets community, like, who's your competition? Or what are you doing that's different than your competition is? And I always, I sort of laugh at the competition question, especially for how early we are in the space in North America is, is I like not being the only guy running around right now. It's, it's, you know, competition means that in terms of regulation change and providing access, what, what we're doing is working. So I think it's great. I think the sooner we can get rid of this competition conversation and talk about, you know, if, if what everybody's talking about in terms of the size of, of the problem that we're trying to solve in, in mental health and physical health and well-being, it, it's an astronomical problem with an astronomical number attached to it. And it's going to take more than just, you know, a handful of, of startup companies to get together to make this happen. Um, I think, you know, for us talking, you know, sort of echoing off of what you were saying, and especially around, um, you know, st- sustainability and who's going to last, you know, we talk about this a lot at Numinous is our success is going to be dictated off of our, our client outcomes um, and, and our participant outcomes. We can have all the flashy branding and build the best looking, you know, centers and whatever. But if the people aren't getting what they're there and, and it's really easy to find out, you know, are you still suffering with the things that you came in suffering from? Or, are you, you know, that's what's going to dictate the, the people who, who last and are, and are making an impact. And I think, you know, that's, that should be the approach that, that everybody's taking. Um, putting them sure. First. That, that, that sounds a lot like Elon Musk. <laughs> you know, like, like his, his goal is not to make the most money in electric vehicles. His goal is to create a sea change in society yeah. and, and, and to transition society away from internal combustion engines and into right. electric vehicles. So according to him, I've heard him quoted saying, if a bunch of other car companies come along and start making electric vehicles and they're more competitive than him and they make him go bankrupt, well, then his job is done. That means there's now an electric vehicles industry. Correct. And, uh, you know, yeah. So, and I think that's what drives, that's what drives new industry, right? That's what we're talking about. We're talking about creating, and it's always, you know, it's hard to say new industry psychedelics have been around for, for thousands, if not tens of thousands of years, but, um, the structure of it in North America, it's, it's a new platform. And, uh, and I, you know, I agree with that. I, you know, I think, I think you've got to have that mindset. I think if you're just focused on, you know, the money, that's a, that's a limiting belief. That's a limiting, um, thought process. You know, you'll, you'll be successful based off of what you create. You have to blow people's minds. You have to deliver. That's the same philosophy, core philosophy that we have here at Soltara is that, you know, that's, what's going to, that's, what's going to make the company survive and and succeed and 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 actually not just that but help the whole industry as a whole blossom and flourish Mm -hmm. because there's so much potential there's so much opportunity like there's so much room to 
to grow and, and so much problem to solve that, you know, there's not just one or two, like not one or two companies can't do it. it there needs to be, there needs to be a greater mobilization yeah. in society yeah. moving toward this. But, you know, you can start the revolution by going to Health Canada and getting the regulations changed. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about that a little bit, but yeah. just going back to your story. So you, you, you had this, these ayahuasca experiences and then you got into MDMA treatments. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, so really now sort of been through the gamut, call it in terms of, of all of the different treatments and, and all within a, a treatment context. Um, and really, you know, twofold. One is I was, I was really, you know, passionate about making myself the best version of myself that I could. And two, I thought it was extremely important that I had experience with, I, I had to know what the Kool-Aid tasted like if I was going to go and sell Kool-Aid. And uh, I think that's important. I think, you know, you have to have context for what these, what these um, different molecules do and, and the reverence for um, what's possible. Um, so, so yeah, that was really the, the approach and around MDMA, you know, we, we had a, you know, on the whiteboard in terms of groups that we wanted to partner with and support maps was, was always at the very, very top of that list. You know, the big reason for why this, this psychedelic movement is where it is in, in North America and, and really abroad right now. And, um, you know, Rick Doblin and I got connected fairly early on to, to my conversations and, we're, we're very, very grateful to, to now be uh, collaborating with them on, on providing access uh, in Canada and, and also abroad as well. So it's, uh, yeah, exciting times. Amazing. And uh, so you're, you're working with psilocybin as well. I, I, I seem to think, or sorry, I seem to remember seeing some news that you got a permit from Health Canada to actually harvest grow yeah. and harvest yeah um from what we can tell um we've now grown uh the first legally grown psilocybin mushrooms since the 70s so um currently growing and and extracting and, and formulating a natural psilocybin product from from the mushrooms themselves that is incredible man congratulations thank you thank you yeah it was like uh, that it's quite yeah, the title it, it was a little surreal. I, I, it didn't, it probably took two weeks for it to like actually hit me. Um, maybe just because I, you know, been, been close to the cup on it for quite some time, but, uh, but yeah, pretty cool to, to see, uh, to see that come to fruition and, and, you know, seeing mushrooms growing in the lab is, is pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah. So you, you got into these medicines, you started Numinous two and a half years ago, you, spent the first 1.5 years mm -hmm. working full-time, growing numinous, putting your own money into it. Mm -hmm. How much time and money did you put into numinous before it started to get any traction? Yeah. I mean, I was really pretty, I mean, when I say full-time, you're, you're, as you know, full-time is eyes open to eyes closed seven days a week when you're in entrepreneurship. And that's, that's really what it yep. was. Um, you know, I, I invested about uh, half a million to a million bucks of, of my own money to, to get it launched Jesus. off of the ground. Um, obviously was working for 
for free <laughs> as, as well. So um, there was a lot of a lot of sweat equity involved, and and I had a, a couple people. Um, my my co-founder Stacy Wallen really there was a really great group of people who who came and and got involved with us pretty early, um, and yeah, really that first year was was you know we sort of knew what where we wanted to go call it five, 10 years down the road. And so it was, it was a lot of conversation with, with a lot of these different research organizations and with Health Canada to really figure out, you know, what's needed and, and where do we see things going in sort of the, the short to medium term. So from there, I would like to, to kind of dig in a little bit more on your fundraising process. Mm -hmm. And I'd also like to dig a little bit more into the regulatory process sure, and, and how you got involved with, with, uh, that. So, uh, do you want to start with, uh, since we're on the, the fundraising, let's, so, so when you, when you wanted to structure that deal, some tactical advice on structuring a deal and, and, uh, a startup entrepreneur getting funded. Yeah, good question. Um, you know, it's you have to be able to, you know, obviously, um, you know, from a personal standpoint. Again, I was funding it, but but was seeing, you know, where where I could go to and and where you know th that musical chairs would stop, and uh, you know, looking at when when does that really start to hamstring the company in terms of um, growth. And, you know, there was a bit of an inflection point for us where we were seeing growth really start to take off. And, and if we didn't raise any money that that would really hamper growth. And, um, you know, we were, we were fortunate enough that this, this space was really catching momentum as well, which, which made things a lot easier. But, um, but in terms of just going out and raising that first capital, um, you know, the, there's there's a balance between having enough of a product to justify evaluation and justify the amount of money you're raising, but also as we said, you know, in terms of people, um, ultimately that that's what it comes down to. And the and when you're when you're taking on investment in those early days, people are investing in you. Um, they're investing in the person who uh, or people who are starting and and making this thing happen. And um, so, you know, sometimes you see people get bogged down a little bit too much with, and I don't want to deter, but they get bogged down with, oh, well, my product will speak for itself and people will just give me money because I've created this good thing. Um, that, that's, that, I don't find that really the case a lot of the time. It's, it's all about the person and, and um, who are the drivers, who's driving the thing and, and who's, who's going to take it from, you know, here to here. And, uh, well, ideas are really a dime a dozen, right? right? Everybody's got a good idea. Can you structure it? Can you build it out? Can you bring it to market? Can you make sure it gets traction and can you yep. take it to the next level over and yep. over and over again? Exactly. And, and making sure it's rooted in some kind of foundation. And again, the people are, are a lot of the time, the foundation for that. As you said, there's, there's lots of great ideas out there. Um, and, uh, I want, I want to be able, you know, again, if I put on my investor hat, I, who I will, or what I want to be supporting or, or who are the people that are going to really make it happen. So you had this kind of magical intersection between having the right team and 
having a broad demand for the 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 treatment in, yep. in society you're seeing you're seeing an increasing demand in the marketplace so to speak yep. and you also started to get traction as a company yeah yep. and you reach those three things so for anyone listening who's got an idea and wants to start a company you know i i, I talked to a guy yesterday who's like asking me for help on how to do something like that mm-hmm. it's like you know i pretty much told him the same thing was you know he's got a he's got a up his game a little bit and and get the get the ball rolling a little bit more and and show that he's going to be the guy to to kind of take it forward but for those who have a good idea and a passion and want to start a company yeah you know the reality is you probably have to put your own blood sweat and tears in it for a little while you probably have to find money under the carpet or you know from your friends and family or work work full time and build your business after hours Mm -hmm. to show some traction and it has to be you know the society has to also want it society has to also be ready for your for your project yeah so then you go you you encounter yourself with this magical intersection and you decide to to take the public take the company public yeah so what's that process like yeah it's a great question and really you know obviously my with my history my my experiences in public companies but i actually you know when we started numinous the plan was actually never to take it public that was i was i was pretty disenfranchised with with capital markets and the public markets and um that that was really never the plan um we ended up going public just because of how quickly things were moving um, and and how fast we were seeing the industry grow and you know we need to markets, scale hard we need to scale fast and uh, and you know public markets give you the opportunity to raise capital quickly um, at you know usually better valuations than you're going to get as a private company and you know for me the other part of that was I wanted to be able to create a vehicle that anybody could come in and support. And as a public company, anybody can come in and buy our stock. Anybody can come in and support the company. And uh, as a private company, that's a little bit more difficult, obviously. And, and you know, there's not a person, as, as you know, there's not a person in this, on this planet that isn't either directly affected or one degree of separation affected by the things that we're talking about addressing. So um, this, this hits home for everybody and, 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 you know, the other side of that is a lot of what we're doing is, is around acquisitions and, uh, you know, we're quite, we've, we've acquired a couple of clinics, um, that we're reverting to or converting to, to fit a little bit of our model. And as a public company, you know, a lot of the acquisitions we're making are equity based acquisitions, which, you know, you can make private equity based acquisitions, but private equities sort of wallpaper until you actually decide to do something with it. Um, and as a public company, we could issue, you know, these different acquisitions, public company shares, which have a value attached to them and they can sell them at some, at, at a later point in time and things like that. So it, it made sense for a few different reasons. Um, the process was, was very interesting. We, we went public on a, on the TSX, which is a, a upper tiered exchange and, if you asked me a couple of years ago if you ever thought I would be explaining to the regulators, uh, the the Securities Commission, um, what MDMA and psilocybin is, 
um, I, I would maybe not believe you, but uh, we had some we had some very very interesting conversations with with the Securities Commission, and and ended up being uh, currently the first, and and I think we're still the only uh, public psychedelic company on the TSX. Um, so, uh, it, but it was definitely definitely an interesting process, and uh, and some very interesting conversations. You're breaking ground, man. You've got uh, you got some pretty Im- impressive uh, world records <laughs> on your side right thank now. Thank you, thank you. Um, so then, what did the investors get by investing? I'm I'm actually a little bit behind the curve on on knowledge about public trading and public companies. So you started off. You probably had a hundred percent of the equity yep. to begin with because. And then, so you take your company public, and if you have a hundred percent of the equity and you have total control, then when you go public, where does your stake go in that? Yeah. So by the time we we went public, we had raised you know some some money that was going to close on the go public round. Um, we went public through an RTO, which was essentially you go public through the acquisition of a a, a public shell company. So there was a little bit of dilution in the in the public shell company, and then essentially what you're offering to investors is equity in the company. So, um, you know, for myself, you know, getting diluted in terms of the percentage of my ownership um, to, to raise money. And now going forward, every time we raise money, there's, we take on dilution from an equity standpoint, um, which is sort of the, the path you go as, as a public company. Um, so that's, that's, yeah, that's sort of how that path goes. Are you offering uh, voting shares or non-voting shares? Yeah, so as as a public company, these these are a part of shares that get to vote. Um, but obviously now, you know, with a we with a, a higher market cap and and um, you know the value of those shares, um, you know, really the that's that's the other side of or I think the benefit of what we're doing in terms of going public is is full disclosure. We have to, you know, there's no you can look under our hood any, you know, 7 days a week. We we have to make public filings, we have to disclose everything we're doing, which I think is a huge opportunity for us because right now people are really trying to understand, you know, it's funny, I, we still have so many people that reach out that are hugely supportive of the space but have no idea what what it, they think they're going to come buy mushrooms from like our mushroom dispensary um, or something like that they they're they're still learning about the therapeutic container and and things like that so there's a lot of education still but uh, but the support is huge. How are you on time? Do you? Uh, yeah, I'm good. Are, yeah, yeah. I got okay. It. Yeah, fine. So um, <clears throat> one last uh, entrepreneurial question: How do you value a company? How do you, how do you make an accurate valuation of a company? Yeah, that's that's a good question, and especially you know in the public markets. So you know we have a, a, a we have about a, a $150, million dollar valuation right now based of based off of our our stock price and our our shares outstanding. So valuations are always a little bit tricky um, in the private sector, you know, usually you're, you've got your fundamentals, you're basing it off of, of revenue or, or depending on what the company is that you're investing uh, in. But I usually, again, I, I go back to what's the size of, of the thing that you're looking to address? What's the, what's the potential of the, of the, of the, 
the problem that you're trying to solve as a, as a company. Um, where are you at in that, you know, debt, things like that, how much money are you going to need? That, that's always a, a really big question for me is, is how much money are you going to need in order to get to where you're, you're looking to go to? Um, so you can base it on projections and market size. You that, can base it on the size of the opportunity. Yeah, that's, I think, a, a really important thing to look at. And, you know, what percentage of that opportunity are, are you hoping to capture? Right? Mm, so it's not just what's your history and then projecting that outward. It, it can be, it can be I wanna, imagined. I wanna, yeah, I want to invest in, I want to I believe in the, the big growth opportunity. Um, you know, a lot of the time people are investing, you know, especially as a startup, they're not investing in you based off of where you are today. They're investing in you based off of where they think you're going to go in the future. That's awesome. That's a, that's a a great confirmation coming from a financial (laughs) professional like yourself. So, uh, let's talk about the regulatory process in Canada, uh, and, and how that was. Yeah. To get through. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's ever evolving. And, and again, for us, you know, we were really fortunate to have some of the people get involved with um, our chief medical officer, Dr. Evan Wood, um, has been really at the forefront of, of a lot of um, not only high quality research, but drug policy change in Canada um, over the last 10 to 15 years. So, um, you know, I think the, the, the huge benefit that we have in Canada and why you've seen Canada really go from being a little bit behind the ball um, with psychedelics to all of a sudden really being at the forefront is, you know, we have a, a, a different sort of process in terms of drug policy change. You know, in the U.S., they've got the FDA. You're going to spend a hundred to a couple hundred million dollars on taking a drug through the FDA approval process. Um, and it's sort of a business. And once you've done that, then you get your DIN number and you can start offering the drug. In Canada, um, there's a lot of different levers that you can pull before having to go through research. And a lot of it is is public policy or, or PR-based, public relations-based. And um, so in Canada, you've seen this huge change. You know, obviously cannabis um, sort of put a crack in the dam and, and open people up to just the fact that drug policy change is possible um, and a real thing. And uh, so in Canada, what we've seen, you know, there was a, a, we have a program called the Section 56 program in Canada, which is essentially Canada, Health Canada granting access to individuals on an individual basis, the use of, of a certain drug or therapy. And psilocybin now we've seen, um, I, I don't know how many people we're up to now, but but a good amount of people who have individually been granted access for the use of psilocybin for end of life anxiety, as well as a, a few people now for depression. But what we also have in Canada is what's called the the special access drug program, and the special access drug program essentially opens up access for unlimited amount of Canadians to. Uh, to get access to, to different drugs or therapies before they finish going through the clinical trial process. And uh, the, our team uh, had presented Health Canada with a briefing note a couple of months ago, um, sort of uh, giving their suggestion on what should be changed. Psychedelics had been removed from being able to be in the special access drug program uh, when they were scheduled in Canada. 
and uh, Health Canada made an announcement, which they allowed us to to co-release with them towards the end of last year, announcing that they're going to change the special access drug program to include MDMA and psilocybin. Uh, so now what that looks like is a 60-day comment period. And after that 60 days, essentially the rollout and implementation of that. So, you know, and within the next 60 days, you could see um, a, a legally supported marketplace for, for MDMA and psilocybin uh, therapy in Canada. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's, and where, where does ayahuasca fit in that? Well, that's, that's a, a very good question. And, and it's something we've seen. So our lab is licensed to do a lot of, of analytical testing on, as I mentioned, DMT. Um, and, uh, so we've had a lot of people reach out, reach out around, um, ayahuasca in particular, and just what, um, you know, looking to start doing research and, you know, Health Canada, a big, big thing that, that drills down to in Health Canada is, is quality assurance and, um, and, and sort of a drug thin number, um, which can be quality assurance can be a little hard with ayahuasca as, as we know. Um, you have to drink it to, to know how good it is. That's right. That's right. That's right. So it's hard to create a, uh, uh, a signed off consistency, um, for, to be able to get through health Canada, but you're seeing the research happen. And, and, um, you know, there's been a lot of groups that have gone different routes, whether that's the, the religious exemption route and, and things like that in Canada. Um, so I, you know, while it's not the first, I would say the first mover in terms of regulation change, I think, you know, whether it's MDMA, psilocybin, ketamine, LSD, all of these things that are getting research is continuing to pave the way for access for, I think, all of these, all of these different medicines and, and providing platform for it. That would all make me nervous if it wasn't so damn cold in Canada, man. <laughs> because, you know, there's always going to be a place for us in the world if, uh, if the climate stays the way it is in Canada. That's but, right. Yeah. And yeah. it looks like there's going to be, it's going to be pretty easy to access treatment, psychedelic treatments in the next few years. It's going to be, mm -hmm. seems to be almost ubiquitous. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I, uh, I, I was quite involved with cannabis and, and from the very early days of, of cannabis rollout in Canada. And when we were funding a lot of the first cannabis companies, you know, the big conversation was just, is this going to become legal or not? Like that was, that was the bet, right? That was the thing that you were, you were wondering about with psychedelics. I mean, the conversation, it's like a foregone conclusion. When I speak to people, um, it's bizarre. Like they're, they're, they're just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. MDMA and psilocybin, that's going to happen. You know, at some, the, the, everybody, <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, it's great. And, and obviously we agree. Um, but you know that's that's where people's heads are at, and I think, you know, the thing that's ex so exciting about this space versus cannabis is cannabis. There was no clinical trials, really. There was no research numbers in terms of the medical benefits. With psychedelics, all you have to do is tell the truth. Like the the fact is is yeah. way better than the fiction is. Um, you know, maps with over seventy percent success rate with treating treatment resistant PTSD. I mean, that's that's like a that's such an insane number when you tell people it they a lot of them don't even believe you but these are mm. you know clinical trial proven results um so it's it's super super exciting well man i can tell you a, a little bit about our experience here in costa rica yeah so you know 
Costa Rica, in, in, there's not a naturally occurring source of ayahuasca or other psychedelics. Well, psil psilocybin mushrooms grow here, but they're actually illegal. So you could get in trouble for doing psilocybin mushrooms here. Um, cannabis is also uh, illegal in Costa Rica. You can get into trouble for cannabis. They probably aren't going to bust you if you got a small amount. They'll just take it. Right. The cops will just take it and then sell it to someone later on. But right. um, these, uh, but when we started working here in Costa Rica, we did uh, we did a legal study mm -hmm. and we found that well, there were some broad laws that that broadly categorize any psychotropic substance as mm. as illegal there was other laws that specified things like mushrooms and cannabis mm. but there were no laws that actually specified uh ayahuasca mm. so so we started operating uh we we decided to not work with psilocybin because there was some, some specific laws against that yeah that we found but we decided to start operating with ayahuasca. However, still with a little bit of anxiety, you sure. know, because you never know. You just sure. never know. You know, are we going to start operating and start rolling and, you know, invest all this money and effort into building a place? And then, you know, the government just comes in and says, oh, sorry, you're not allowed to do this. So we did try to operate under the radar for a little while. Easier said than done. Uh, especially when you get published in the New York Times. Um, so, uh, so you know, a, a few months ago, maybe six months ago, I got a call from the Ministry of Health mm. in Hikaral, which is a town just about 30 minutes away from Soltara. So we're kind of in that district. And he called me in to talk to him. And we've already jumped through a million hoops in this country. Like it's just hoop after hoop after hoop. Mm -hmm. They're just all, they always seem to be creating new hoops to jump through. Mm -hmm. um, so anyways, I go in there and I'm like worried that, you know, th there's just going to be some other stupid thing that I need to get through in order to keep operating. And we get in and, and uh, he shows me a file that was sent to him by the central minister of health, the federal minister of health in Costa Rica and this like psychedelic psychoactive drugs agency and like the police and everything like that. They had all known about us for some time and they did an extensive study on us hmm. and they knew everything about us. They knew my social media. They knew, Wow. They knew, you know, our website, they knew our YouTube videos, like everything. And they basically said, okay, well, we've concluded that you're not doing anything illegal. Hmm. But because you're working in alternative health and there is some risk to this, we now require you to have a doctor on site to check people. Doesn't have to stay there. Just when people come, yeah. the, the doctor checks them and we sent them, we sent the government our our existing intake process, you know, people go through medical questionnaire, psychological questionnaire, talk to a doctor, psychologist, if they need to before yeah. coming, yeah. Um, you know, we check their medications. So there are no contraindications. And, uh, you know, so we sent them that, but they said, okay, well, in addition to that, we want a Costa Rican doctor to provide us with a spreadsheet with everybody's names on it, who, you know, who are, who are, I don't know if we actually have to give the names, but 
basically just approve it. So the doctor essentially checks everybody. Yeah. Does a blood pressure check, temperature check, you know, um, standard stuff, very quick, very simple, very easy. He doesn't, you know, ask a lot of questions, but doctor gives you the clearance to work with medicine. Hmm. And then at the end of your trip, you see the doctor again, he checks you out, asks you a couple of questions, make sure you're okay. And he clears you to travel home. So now with this process in place, we've essentially become legal to yeah. operate with ayahuasca in Costa Rica. The government is totally cool with it. Wow. Paying our taxes just like everyone else, man. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Very, very cool. Well, yeah. it's, it's so cool to see, uh, you know, again, like the, the, the mindset that we've seen even from Health Canada. Like there's, they're really not looking at this as like, okay, this is an illegal drug. They're really looking at this as, as a medicine. And, um, you know, more often than not, from what we've seen, they're calling us, asking us questions in terms of, of how we think this should go. They're not calling us saying, you know, no, or, or uh, what you're doing is bad or wrong or illegal. Um, they've, from what we've seen, been, been super supportive. And obviously, you know, with the current climate that we're in, um, you know, healthcare and, and different modes of treatment are, have been, are more needed now than they ever have been. So. Yeah. Times they are a change in my friend swiftly. That's it. Yeah. Cool. Time. Thanks to guys like you. So thank you so much, man, for all the work you're doing. Thank you. You know, you're uh, you're a, an exemplary entrepreneur and role model for all the young kids out there and uh, for the rest of us. So um, yeah, man, best of luck with, numinous and with your endeavors and with with health canada and everything like that how are people uh how are people getting in touch with numinous getting in touch with you yeah yeah you can check out numinous on obviously all of our social channels um or go on our website numinous.ca um and uh, there's lots of great content on there we do a lot of uh education and and just information just about the broad industry in general as well so if you're looking for just information on on the space and and what psychedelic therapy is um head on over and, and take a look and for speaking requests engagement requests with you yeah uh with me just on our website we've got a a, a page there where you can put in requests through there or reach out to me uh on all my social peyton nyquist uh on uh, instagram twitter linkedin all that nonsense whatever the whatever the latest and greatest is of the day sure Cool, well, hey, man, thank you so much for making the time. Really enjoyed talking to you. I think uh, it was a loaded conversation with a lot of uh, fantastic uh, cool. wisdom and knowledge and information. So much love to you. And thank you so much again for all your work, brother. Likewise. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. All right, man. The Daniel Cleland Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for the Daniel Cleland Podcast. We truly enjoy you sharing your time with us. If you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed sharing it with you, please like the episode, review the podcast, subscribe. If you're not already subscribed, these likes and reviews and subscriptions are the lifeblood of our show. So free for you, super important for us. Like, subscribe, and review. Thank you so much. Of course, this podcast would not be possible without the continued 
amazing sponsorship of Soltara Healing Center in Costa Rica. If you feel called to work with plant medicines, ayahuasca, shamanismo, curanderismo from Peru, from the Peruvian Amazons to Costa Rica, check out Soltara Healing Center at soltara.co or conveniently 1-800-397-1730 or look us up on social media at Soltara Healing Center. All kinds of great content, nonstop, coming out, down the pike, every day, just for you. Thanks again so much for joining. I appreciate it beyond words, and I look forward to doing many more of these episodes for you and connecting. If you want to reach out to me, there's a contact form on my website, danielcleland.com. Feel free to hit me up. I read every email and try to respond to all of them. Thanks again. Much love to you, and I hope we get to catch up soon. All the best.